Welcome to this week's Refresh and Restore Bible Study Podcast. Coming back off of a short holiday break and excited to get back into our Colossians, Jesus Overall Study. The passage we are digging into today is Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. We hope to get through most of that today. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Greetings, sojourners. I hope those of you listening to this in the U.S. had a good and relaxing 4th of July last week and that y'all reading it elsewhere are well, too. As I reflected on the ideas of independence and freedom over the past few weeks, I found myself thinking of a verse again and again that reminded me of something really beautiful regarding today's passage. The verse that's been coming to mind as I pondered that is Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This verse reminds me that there is beautiful freedom in Christ that doesn't come from sin. He is not keeping us from joy or happiness by telling us that the sin we want to commit is sin. He's freeing us from the bondage we don't know really and actually accompanies our sin. This comforts me as I ponder my own life and my own sin, which if you read or listened to the last Bible study in this series was the challenge. At the end of this month, I'm about to turn 38, and so reflecting is kind of what I do now. When I was younger, I had plans for where I thought I would be at this point in my life. At age seven, I wanted to be what I called then a singing preacher or what some would call a minister of music or worship pastor. At age 17, my plans then included teaching for a few years, getting my master's, becoming a principal, and having my doctorate at 35 years old, which hasn't happened. At age 27, I just wanted to overcome the burnout and depression I was experiencing. I had burned out and quit ministry a few weeks before I turned 30 in 2015 and moved back home. 
If somebody had told the 2015 version of me that I would have the contentment and peace I have today in my walk with Christ and in my home life, I would have laughed in their face and probably told them they were full of something. I spent so long wanting to be something that I lost track of who I was. My identity became wrapped up in my job. Now, that's a very modern way of putting that situation. Biblically, workaholism uh, is a form of the sin of pride. Burnout for me was when my prideful pursuit of being somebody turned into the realization that worker status could never give me what I was looking for. It was never intended to provide the feelings and validation I craved or really coveted, which is sinful itself. That sounds really negative. It definitely felt negative. But as I've learned by reflecting, God has blessed me and fulfilled me over the past seven years in ways I could have never imagined. The first blessing was finding him and his word and prayer and realizing that he had never moved. The second blessing is realizing how amazing and beautiful the life God had built me by giving Candace and the kiddos. There were more blessings than I can possibly list here, but ultimately finding my identity in Christ helped me see which aspects of my life needed to be removed, which aspects needed to be put to death. Work had to have its own place. Success and recognition had to have theirs as well. Eventually, after a lot of repenting, life rearrangement, correction through the word, and more than a little training from Candace, I found joy in pastoral ministry that I never had in the years prior to burning out. I don't want you to miss this. The issue that burned me out was sin. Not church situations, not work situations, not life situations. My own sin, the sin of pride. Pride is a dangerous thing. It's kind of like the carbon monoxide of sinfulness, tasteless, odorless, and deadly. It crept in subtly and slyly. It began with a mix of not getting the recognition I felt I did deserve. People told me that, church folks even. Then I, I got a taste of recognition. Humility left quickly. I wanted more of that. The idea that I could become something quickly overtook my ministerial life. The fulfillment that came from compliments and attaboys was fleeting. The larger my pride became, the smaller my satisfaction. I just wanted to quit, and, and quit I did. But pride even tainted that. I faked a sabbatical so that I wouldn't have to live with the reality of failure. And my brilliant plan was just to keep extending it until I could bear the reality that I was spent, that I was done. As I said, there were things in my life that needed to be killed, that needed to be dead to me. There were areas of my life that had to be pruned, cutting away some of the weeds and thorns that were keeping me from growing. And in that is freedom. Christ had set me free from the bondage created by my own sin. Hear that, my own sin. 
I'm not discounting the powers and principalities that are at work in the world, the satanic and demonic that we see in passages like Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. I'm just simply owning how my own sinful desires were leading toward bondage and foolishness. And I'm thankful that I didn't fully experience those to the extent that I could have. That's what Paul's talking about in this section of Colossians. In the midst of their dealing with false teachers, the church at Colossae had sin of their own that needed to be taken off, as well as aspects of being like Christ that they needed to put on. This wasn't Paul molding the Colossian church in his image, but an opportunity to show them what it looks like to set their minds on Christ rather than this world. This was, as Paul said in Romans 12 too, an opportunity not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of their mind. We, like the Colossian church, need to be active in putting to death the sin in our lives and taking it off so that we can live the life we have in Christ. To start here, let's look at what needs to be put to death here in verses 3 through 7. There is a famous quote from the Puritan pastor John Owen. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Really, it's the last part of that quote, be killing sin or it will be killing you, that is the most commonly quoted and most apropos for our study today. In that quote, he describes a daily process of examining one's life in order to kill, in order to mortify, as he calls it, sin before it kills you. If you compare that to the way we talk about sin today, Owen sounds a bit crazy. How can he take something so seriously that obviously is not taken seriously anymore? Either he is wrong or the modern view of sin is. Which one lines up with the Bible? Owen, obviously. We talked last time about how there's a lot of anxiety surrounding calling sin sinful. I have read or heard no fewer than a dozen people, and this is in the last month, mind you, who talked about how things that used to be sin or actions that people used to consider sins are sins no longer. This is related to those necessary presuppositions that we've been talking about. If you believe the Bible really is the Word of God, then what God calls sin in the Bible is sin. If you believe that those who are saved are different as taught in the Bible, then what is taught to be sin in the Bible should no longer be in our lives. God knows what we need, and he knows how we need to live and how not to live. Speaking of not living, the wages of sin is death. But praise be to God, he specializes in taking those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and making them alive in Christ. 
So before we dive into what appears to be the first of two lists of sins, we need to ask ourselves a question. If sin really is as deadly as the Bible says it is, why would someone want to convince us otherwise? Really, take a second. Consider that question. If what the Bible teaches in passages like Romans 6.23 and James 1.14 and 15, two passages among many, if sin really is that deadly, why would someone want to convince us that what is deadly is safe and how evil and hateful would that individual have to be? It reminds me of the difference in the way people talk about cigarettes now versus how they did 30 years ago. 30 years ago, the Marlboro Man and Joe Camel were cool. They were culturally cool. They were iconic even. And then that dadgum Surgeon General decided to attack the tobacco industry and act like cigarettes could cause lung cancer or something. I remember seeing commercials in the 90s talking about why Big Tobacco wanted to downplay the cancer risk of smoking because they wanted to sell cigarettes. Who would want to take advantage of us like that in regard to sin? Ultimately, that answer is simple, Satan. Look at the way he's described in Revelation 12.12. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, is what it says in 1 Peter 5.8. Jesus in John 10.10 tells us that his agenda is to steal and kill and destroy. He is dangerous in that since he knows his time is short, he is a predator backed into a corner. But understand this, he's not looking for minions to rule over in hell. He's not going to be in charge there. He's going to be an inmate. And he is spitefully evil and wants to see as many people misled as he can. Now, we need to acknowledge a few things about these lists of sins. And we're really only going to get to the first list today. And so I want to clarify a few things. I want to to give a few ground rules, kind of like a referee before a big fight. But instead of prohibiting kidney punches and rabbit punches, we need to clarify what is and is not a low blow when it comes to discussing sin. First, God's Spirit gave this list, not Paul. Some people want you to believe that this was a list of pet peeves that Paul had and that Paul wanted to pick on. We need to be careful and guard against calling evil good and good evil. Second, we must be careful to present it as it is in the Bible. There's always a temptation to emphasize certain sins that we hate or that we are uncomfortable with while making light of sins that... (laughs) probably ones that we commit ourselves, or that we just don't think are that big a deal. God alone gets to set the agenda regarding his righteous standard. God alone gets to decide what is sin. 
We must guard against our own agendas trying to steer the text of Scripture. And so I've thought a lot about how to present this information and have decided to list it out kind of categorically. If you look at the written version of this, and you can find that web address in the podcast description, the written version has it in chart form. I'm going to do my best to categorically explain that here. Uh, In doing so, I've decided to use the same lexicon and Greek dictionary on all the words so that I present their definitions fairly and evenly and not be tempted to whittle the context to fit any agenda. Even when there aren't quotations uh, in the definitions on the written form, the information on those definitions comes from, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Spiros Zodiates, the Complete Word Study Dictionary, New Testament. More importantly, I looked at every verse in the New Testament and a few from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done in the 3rd century B.C. I've looked at all those verses that contained these exact words. Now, this might seem boring probably is. But I want to make sure that you see the information here and that it's kept as objective and free from bias as I can because these are things that we need to be taking off. These are things that are earthly rather than godly. These are sins that if we are not actively mortifying, actively killing, that can be killing us. In some of these, you'll see that some of the passages, some of the verses are used multiple times, and and that shows, especially in the New Testament world, how some particular sins were affecting multiple places, people groups, and church. So, with no further ado, these are the sins that Paul says we need to put to death, things that are earthly rather than godly. The first term is sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia. This is a catch-all term that describes anything sexual that deviates from the intimacy between husband and wife. Um, Zodiates uses fornication as part of the definition, which means any sex outside of marriage. And it's important that we look at the right definitions here, and, and this is the reason. Sometimes when people are confronted with fornication as a translation of porneia, they want to call fornication premarital sex, acting like it's an issue of timing, not an issue of sin. It's not an issue of having sex with somebody you intend to marry and you just got your timing wrong. It's an issue that emphasizes that marriage between a husband and wife is God's plan for sex, period. And for clarity's sake, every bit of lust or sex outside of God's design is sin, period. Multiple, multiple verses in the New Testament that use this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, 
the body is not meant for porneia, sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from porneia, from, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7.2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 2 Corinthians 12.21, notice there's a huge chunk of uh, Corinthians here, first and second. I fear that when my God may humble me before you, that I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Galatians 5.19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Ephesians 5.3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Revelation 9.21, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You see there in that list that majority of the churches that Paul wrote to, this was a struggle. And again, think about how sin works. Sin is based on our own desires, and those desires run strong. The next word in the list is impurity, the Greek word akatharsia. This basically means unclean, but it's not as clear-cut as the idea of being unclean in the Old Testament. This is meant to describe something that's been tainted by sin, and it gives a connotation of something being, being rotten. This sort of sin can be by oneself or with others. Uh, verses that cover this, Romans one twenty four. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, ekatharsia, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. 1 Thessalonians 2.3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. This is how Jesus uses the word talking to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23.27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. The next word is passion, pathos. This word is only used three times in the New Testament. It's used numerous times in Greek-speaking texts and especially rhetoric. Uh, every time this word is used, it's not always meant to reference sin. Um, the word pathos does just mean passion. Passion can be a good thing, 
but it's all about context. Our passage here in Colossians and the one that we're about to see in 1 Thessalonians imply or include lust, while the passage we're about to look at in Romans, the, the word pathos is accompanied by a, a word translated dishonorable. The understanding here is that these particular passions negatively affect those who participate in them. Again, the word pathos does not always reference sin. Note how dishonorable and lust clarify the context. Passion is good. It can be beautiful, but only fitting with God's plan and intent. Essentially, we've got to ask, ask the question of Proverbs 6, 27 and 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? The idea there being dishonorable, lustful passions are like fire that we're carrying, saying, no, it's all good. I, I can touch this. I can carry this. I can step on this. I'm fine. It's all good. Look at the context. Romans 1, 26 for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable pathos, passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, not in the pathos, passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Next, we have evil desire, the Greek word epithumia. This word is stronger than the English portrays. What we see is desire. Uh, it, it's a longing, almost lustfully so, that accompanies the idea of desire. It's like an appetite that needs to be satisfied. Think about the context of some of the instances of this word being translated. In some of these, it's going to be desires, some of them passions, but I want you to consider the connotation, consider the idea, the relationship of these words with that of passionate hunger. 1 Timothy 6, 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into the temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful epithumia desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The appetite there almost matches that of a, a passionate hunger, like a, a craving or addiction. 2 Timothy 3.6, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time has come when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Think about that, how sometimes false teachers creep in because we would rather have our appetites satiated than be fed with the Word of God. Titus 3.3 for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Then in 
used twice in this next passage that we looked at in the last Bible study, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Several more of these quickly. First uh, Peter one fourteen. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. First Peter four two and three. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Second Peter one four by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Second Peter 3, 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Uh, used twice in Jude 16 through 18, once as desires, the second for passions. There are grumblers, malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Finally, in our list, we have covetousness, which, as Paul says here and in the book of Ephesians, that covetousness is a synonym, essentially. It's the same as idolatry. The Greek word here is pleonexia. It's an interesting word. It means covetousness, which if we're honest, there's nobody using covet outside of a Bible context. They're Ten Commandments driven largely if they're talking about covetousness. But it that's what it means. It means covetousness or greediness, but it has a kind of inherent meaning of being the root of other sins. Like Think about it like this, like greediness that sparks a desire to do something else or wanting something that belongs to another with a twinge of bitter rivalry that become, believes they don't deserve to have it as much as we would. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you of the passage if you heard the sermon last week from Christ Community or read last the last uh, Refresh and Restore Bible study, there's a reason the Bible continually references Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah when taking into account the sin of David there. This is idolatry because it seeks to forsake God as the object of worship by being filled or satisfied by things of earth. Three verses that highlight this. Romans one twenty nine. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Uh, Ephesians 5, uh, 3 through 5, uses uh, it twice in two different forms. 
But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Luke twelve fifteen. Jesus used the word. He said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I know that was a lot, sojourners. And so that's why we're only covering one list today. Uh, to wrap up, I want us to look more at that context. Paul follows the list by saying, on account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. And I want you to know the wrath of God is not to be taken lightly. It describes the attitude of God toward sin. Psalm 5.4 says that he hates it. That hatred drives his wrathfulness towards sin. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? How could a God who the Bible in 1 John 4.16 literally says that he is love, how can he who is love hate something? Isn't that a contradiction? That's what the world would want to tell you. God, God can't hate sin because God is love. But I want you to think about it like this. If you have a loved one that's beset by some sickness, do you love the sickness? I want to be careful in my wording here because God does show love towards sinners in salvation. But I also want us to understand what the Bible says. Those he shows love toward in grace and mercy, those who have confessed him as Lord and believed in their hearts that God has raised Christ from the dead, have been in love and this is how it's said in Romans 5, 9. In love they have been saved by him from the wrath of God. I mentioned earlier how we need to be careful not to overemphasize or de-emphasize sin, but rather to look at it in the way it's presented in the Word. There are many preachers who use sin and the fear of God's wrath, which you need to understand, that's an appropriate fear. But they want to use it in a sense to, and, and, and pardon the crass language, they want to use it in a sense to scare the hell out of people, to motivate them to follow Christ out of a fear of God's wrath and eternal damnation. What I want you to see here is that for those who put their faith in Jesus, he bore the wrath of God. Our sins deserve on the cross. We are all of the things represented, all of the wickedness in the list above. Jesus is none of those things. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love is a much better motivator than fear which brings us full circle to consider the beauty of Galatians 5.1. Christ has set us free for freedom, not in bondage to sin. Uh, you know, I'm an English teacher, so a, a poem comes to mind uh, by a guy named John Dunn, who was an English poet and pastor from the turn of the late 1500s, early 1600s. And he wrote a poem that 
and, and you can find it in the written version in the footnotes. He wrote a poem that describes God seeing us in our sin as captives in a labor camp built out of a conquered town. In this poem, we have Stockholm Syndrome. We've grown to love our captor and embrace the labor camp as life. When the reality is it's prison, it's our death, it's our demise. Dunn writes of God coming in and busting down the doors to bring his bride home to him, essentially saying to hell with death because he will never leave or forsake his bride. What a beautiful image. God coming to earth to redeem his bride from this world of sin. Amen. So if you read through those sins and, and looked at the verses and, and, show, and see them for what they truly are, they show us sinners who we are. You can either decide to ignore what you know about the wrath of God, or you can embrace the offer of love and forgiveness. You can choose to sit in the squalor of the labor camp of your sin, or you can embrace the conquering king. I don't sit here and type this in judgment. I've got no ulterior motive of condemnation. I'm a sinner too. The difference is I've put my trust in Jesus, what he's done on the cross and his resurrection and what he's doing and going to do. I've given my life to him, and, and little by little, day by day, year by year, he makes me more like him. And I long for the day that the sin I've clung to so closely becomes distasteful, that I put the fire away from my chest and Jesus appears more lovely and dear and brings freedom. Are you willing to take an honest assessment of your life? I hope that in doing so, you realize your need for him. If you'd like to talk to someone, reach out. I'd love to help you. If you realize that you've become distant from Christ, repent, turn back. He hasn't moved. Remember the warning from John Owen. You better be killing the sin in your life because it is surely killing you. But Jesus, he offers life. Hallelujah and amen.